Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi, welcome everybody. I'm Laura Davis. I'm the ODI's Head of Content. Thank you all for coming this lunchtime to hear Richard Leeming from um, the RES um, project at the BBC. Working for RES, he will talk to us about what that project is doing to encourage museums and art galleries to use open data and benefit from using open data. Please do engage in the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag ODI Fridays. And after Rich has spoken, there'll be time for questions. Thanks very much. Well, thank you all very much for giving up your Friday lunchtime to come. As uh, Laura's just said, I'm uh, from the Research and Education Space Project. We are a joint uh, partnership between the BBC, JISC, and an organisation called Learning on Screen, which used to be the BUFBC. If when you were at school, teacher wheeled a big telly in and showed you a TV programme, it was them that made that possible. Uh, so what I'm here to talk about is not only what we're doing, uh, but also the, about the fantastic work that is going on, uh, on across the whole of the cultural sector in uh, implementing linked open data for their collections. But that work does need an awful lot of help. It's uh, work that's being done by some very committed people, um, and you'll hear from some of them in the presentation. But they need strategic help, they need money, they need technical support, uh, and they need uh, really buy-in, in some cases, at the, at the very top of their organisations. So just to tell you a little bit more about the research and education space, um, the, the aim of the project is to make it easier for teachers, students, and academics to discover and use material held in the public collections of broadcasters, museums, galleries, and libraries, as well as publishers. And what we're doing is, well, there's three uh, prongs to it. We're building a platform that is an open platform built by the BBC, which organizes and indexes the catalogues of publicly accessible archives if they're published as linked open data with the licensing formatted correctly. We're also a collaboration. We're working with public sector organizations to release their collections in the form of linked open data to assist in the discovery of their assets. And we're also an ambition to stimulate developers to build products powered by RES uh, for teachers, learners, and academics to help them access those, that data and collections. Now, this is the Culture White Paper, which was released by the government earlier this year. And uh, David Cavern using his favorite word there, passionately, which he uses a lot. And this is uh, the preface. Um, and David Cameron's been showing us his interest in culture only this morning. And apparently he's been recreating the uh, walk across the, uh, the cover of the Beatles' Abbey Road um, album uh, with Tessa Jowell. Um, the picture's got a large van in the back of it. I think the Beatles managed to avoid having a large van in the back of it. Um, anyway, uh, I shouldn't uh, be uh, politically controversial. It's very bad if you work for the BBC. Anyway... <laughs> I think yeah, he believes this. I mean, clearly believes this. The whole of the government believe this. And um, I think that if you believe in equality of access, attracting all and welcoming all, then you're talking about open, aren't you? Because that's really the best way of, um, of achieving all of those ambitions. Now, the white paper talks about the value of culture, and actually, commendably, it does start about talking about the intrinsic value of culture and the social value of culture. Um, and the intrinsic value of culture, and I'm reading now directly from the white paper, is it creates inspiration, enriches lives, and, and uh, improves our outlook on life. It, the d evidence suggests that culture has an intrinsic value through the positive impact on personal well-being. And data shows that engaging with culture, such as visiting, attending, and participating, significantly increases overall life satisfaction. And the social value of culture is that it has important social benefits in terms of health, communication, and uh, community cohesion, and education. And there's considerable evidence of the beneficial impact of arts on both physical and mental health. So the impact of uh, culture, the intrinsic and social value of culture, is enormous, as is the economic value of culture. Um, Oh, wrong one. Yes, uh, 5.4 billion pounds. That is the, um, the, the economic value of culture in this country. Uh, that's around 0.3% of the total UK economy. And the government's very proud that this has gone up 59% uh, in nominal terms since 2010, uh, whereas the rest of the economy has only gone up by about 16%. So we can see that culture is playing an increasing part in our lives. And um, heritage tourism is worth £26 billion pounds to our economy. That's 2% of our GDP is, um, is generated through uh, heritage tourism. I'm actually slightly surprised it's as little as that. If you think of the, especially here in London, the amount of people coming uh, in and seeing our fantastic uh, cultural institutions, you can't walk down a road outside half of them without bumping into uh, um, coach loads of tourists, then I'm surprised it's as little as that. 
And the number of people employed in the heritage and cultural sector is increasing uh, since 2011 is now 321,000 people. So this is an important sector in our economy. And the Arts Council have also done an awful lot of work on the value of culture as well. They looked at society and looked at how high school students who engage in the arts at school are twice as likely to volunteer as those who don't engage in the art, 20% more likely to vote. They look at the employability of students, which goes up if they engage in arts. And they look at how culture and sport volunteers are more likely than average to be involved and influential in their local communities. They look at the health and well-being and say that those who attended a cultural event or place in the previous 12 months were almost 60% more likely to report good health compared to those who were not. Theatre goers are 25% likely to report uh, good health. Causation or correlation? I don't know, but let's not go into that. Um, let's, uh, research has shown that higher frequency of engagement with arts and culture is generally associated with a, subject, a better subjective level of well-being. You look at the economy, I've already talked about that, but every pound spent in culture, an additional £2.1 uh, £2 and a penny, uh, is generated in the wider economy through indirect and induced multiplier events. And in 2011, 10 million inbound uh, visits from uh, people coming in um, from outside the UK involved engagement with the arts and culture, representing 32% of all visits to the UK and 42% of all inbound tourism expenditure. And in terms of education, students from uh, low-income families who take part in arts activities at school are three times more likely to get a degree uh, than children from low-income families who don't engage in arts activities. So I think positive evidence there that the um, artist, the cultural sector is very, very important to the UK as a whole. And the government believes in this. They are going to do something. They're going to write a report, which is really good news. But actually, we could be cynical, but that is the way government works. So I think um, uh, what that report what it is services the ambition is they want to make the UK one of the world's leading countries for digitised public collections content. And they want users to employ a seamless experience online and have the chance to access particular collections in depth as well as search across all collections. Now, reading that yesterday, I thought this is very much like the sort of thing my colleague Bill Thompson might have said. And I wonder why there's a correlation between those two things. So how are they going to influence this? As I say they're going to write a report. The, that report will look at common technical standards and licensing, what support institutions need to digitise their collections, the capacity for storing collections online, the need to update digital collections in, in line with advances in technology and the skills needed now and then in the future by cultural organisations to make these developments happen. They are talking about working with commercial partners and they don't use the word open. So my suggestion here, and this is the first provocation, is that we know about all that stuff. This is meat and drink to us. We need to be going back to the government and telling them how to do it and telling them that the word open needs to be in that report alongside uh, commercial because although the Google Cultural Institute does amazing and fantastic things, we don't necessarily want to hand all our um, valuable cultural heritage data over to a large uh, American corporation headquartered 10,000 miles away, when actually, by using some open web uh, technologies, we can enable the same benefits for ourselves. So, here are some of the issues, um, and this comes from an excellent report by the Collections Trust, which is one of the overarching bodies for collections, um, which is called Striking the Balance, and that looks at how uh, public institutions, museums, are balancing the competing demands of opening up their collections with the need to um, uh, make things open as well. And it makes sobering reading for those of us in the sector who want to encourage the uptake of digital technologies. The report admits that the cultural sector is facing some major issues, a lack of standards, a lack of skills, a lack of understanding, sometimes at senior management levels, and not enough incentives to break away from existing pre-digital models. Uh, the joy of this job that I have now is I get to go around and talk to people in cultural institutions all over the country. And several times I come across the same conversation, and it was voiced to me particularly by um, uh, a senior digital leader at an institution that probably everyone in the world has heard of, uh, who I'm not going to name the institution or the person, and they said that you know, they are blocked from opening up um, their collections data uh, into open models because the people at this institution like to use it to sell books and they sell sometimes several hundred copies of those books every year and if you think about what might be achieved with opening up that data compared to the selling of several hundred uh, coffee table books every year then I think you, know, you get the picture but the problem is that these people are have been doing that for a very long time. They're very scholarly, they're very well educated, and actually that's quite hard to get them to change their point of view. So 
the other thing that uh, those of us in the public sector are very well aware of is that, um, uh, like most institutions in the public sector, we're facing a very, very challenging funding environment at the moment. And sometimes change is easy when you're under pressure, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes the inclination is just to put your head down and get on with what you know. And at different levels, the cultural sector is doing both. Excuse me, I need a drink. Actually, I shouldn't leave you with George Osborne out there. Um, so, um, but it has to be said that the cultural sector does understand that digital is absolutely vital for their future. Uh, and the Science Museum in London, for instance, welcomes more than 3 million visitors per person, uh, in person a year, but 12 million people to its various online digital projects. So four times as many people engage with the Science Museum digitally than they do actually in person. So, focus on open. Most museums and most galleries and, art, uh, and so on are, have expressed an interest in going open, but in the absence of a clear definition, the actual implementation of this intent as a policy direction or as a series of actions is very far from clear. And this is where the whole sector does need some help. In practice, different institutions are finding their way through the current experiment by adopting policies based on practical steps and gradual advances. For example, by adopting more permissi permissive licensing frameworks in respect of lower risk collections, or in terms of the institution that I discovered last, uh, I talked to last week, they're going to identify 10 objects which they can release as open data. Now, they've probably got several million in their collection, but they're going to find 10 that they can release as, as open data. And that's a start, and I'm grateful to them for doing that. But 10, the gap between 10 and several millions is, is as anybody can count knows, is quite big. So, um, this is sort of what's happening. This is the sort of chain of what's happening across the, the, uh, um, um, uh, the whole sector. And you can see it goes from radically open, of which there are a couple, through mission-driven and turn the water, to nearly everybody is thinking about it. Um, and then this l represents how people are, th this end of the spectrum here, how people are managing the open data versus fully commercial. I mean, the VNA have set up a fully commercial subsidiary, uh, which manages their relationship with co commerce in the same way that perhaps BBC Worldwide does to the BBC in the world that I'm familiar with. But I mentioned earlier the lack of standards, the lack of skills, and the lack of understanding, and in some places a lack of management drive. But there is solid leadership coming from some parts of the sector and vast amounts of ambition. And we are a bit late for the Cannes, Cannes Film Festival, but this is the world premiere of a short film we've just had made at Res with the help of Chris Michaels from the British Museum, Dr. Mia Ridge from the British Library, and Tom Scott from the Welcome Collection. And as you're going to see, they get it. Uh, they don't get it if I don't press play. Um, where's the play? There. The original logo of the web had a lovely byline, just let's share what we know. And in many ways, I would hope that cultural institutions would be willing to embrace that philosophy. Digital technology is changing the way we connect information to make it more meaningful, accessible, and useful to others. The Research and Education Space, or RES, is a new semantic web platform using linked open data to transform the future of education and learning. The British Museum's job is to share its collection with everyone in the whole world. And just as we do our job to put all of our objects on display, so now our job is to share our data and the data about our objects with everyone in the whole world. And linked open data is the best way by which to do that. The benefit for us in making content available as linked open data is that it spreads more widely. Um, we're particularly interested in linking to other collections to go mainstream, I think that ironically we need to stop thinking about the technology. Too often when a linked open data project starts, people immediately start thinking about triple stores and XML and RDF and ontologies. And actually the place to start is to think about your users, the information you've got, how your users think about that information and how you can sensibly model it to their benefit. To make your data more accessible, it needs to be openly licensed. How you license your assets is up to you, putting you in control of how they are used. One of the questions that I was asked when I was talking to people internally about REVS was, will they be taking copies of our content? And I could say no, because all they're doing is taking an index to that content. They're not actually taking the content themselves. That made it a lot easier to get approval internally, because people were comfortable knowing that um, Res only wanted the metadata and not actual copies of our objects or of our images. The whole of the British Museum's digital collection is available via Res. That means over three million objects telling the story about the whole of the human race from the beginning of time to now is available in open data for use through the Res platform. 
So the uh, sort of impact that Chris, Mia and Tom want to see is best exemplified by the Rijksstudio in Amsterdam. Now the Rijksmuseum opened, uh, in, reopened on the 13th of April 2013 after a period of renovation which had lasted for about 10 years. Uh, and the purpose of the museum is to tell the visual story of the arts and history of the Netherlands. Now that long closure, which was embarrassing for them at the time, actually had a fantastic beneficial effect as it allowed them to think through what they wanted to do digitally. And what they did when they went digitally is they went completely open. Now, vast amounts of their collection is open, not just the data, but the, the artworks themselves. Uh, so at launch, they provided free access to high-quality images of 125,000 works in the uh, museum's collection. Since then, it's grown to more than 200,000, and the impact has been immediate. Uh, not only has it been, uh, generated vast amounts of positive coverage in the media, but it's also, uh, they've capitalized on this by running all sorts of competitions with beneficial effects. And one of the things that um, they did, which I thought was most interesting, is they solved the problem of the yellow milkmaid. Now, this is the yellow milkmaid by, the, the milkmaid by Vermeer, one of his best-known works. And one of the problems that the uh, Rijksmuseum had before they did this was that people would come into the museum and look at the picture on the wall and go, that's the wrong one. You got the wrong picture there. The reason being that someone had put out early on the internet a sort of badly scanned copy of it, which was a bit yellow, and that had gone so far over the internet that people thought that was the right one, and the one hanging on the wall in the museum was the wrong one. And so they did. The, this is a slide from the Rijksmuseum, which I saw a fantastic presentation a couple of weeks ago. And um, yeah, this is what they found when they put into Google Images search Rijksmuseum, and you can see the cat down there, bottom left. So uh, <laughs> what they wanted to do uh, was get rid of the problem of the yellow milkmaid. Go, no, the one that we've got is the right one. Honest. Um, and alongside this, they did. Um, you know, they realised that their um, revenue generated by selling high-quality images uh, went down by 75%. Uh, which was an initially a concern until they realized that the staff costs in generating that revenue were nearly as much as the revenue they were getting themselves. They were actually making, yeah, and they're a big museum, they're rich, an in, a totally insignificant amount of money from selling um, their images online. And they did have much better ways of, of doing it. Yeah, they have, um, um, I'm not quite sure, I've forgotten now my presentation, whether I've got things coming up, but they've had all sorts of different approaches uh, enabled by uh, selling their by creating stuff open. They've got people creating dresses and selling them in the shop. You know, they've got stuff going on, on on Etsy and their audience engagement has been through the roof. So it's been for them a huge success. Here, this image, those of you familiar with the ODI website will be familiar with it because I've taken it from your website and it's from the Natural History Museum. And you know, they're doing amazing work releasing openly um, how much is it? 80 million specimens and releasing them as open data and they're hoping that by releasing 80 million specimens as open data they will enable them to find some new species and as we've seen in the film there's fantastic work going on at the Wellcome Library the British Museum and the British Library yesterday the People's Collection of Wales in Cardiff have uh, released all their um, I mean, the, the, we, uh, we worked with them, yes, and yesterday they said they'd done the work and it's being moved to their live server today. So I'm hoping that as of uh, today, the um, People's Collection of Wales, uh, which has got vast amounts of bilingual stuff in English and Welsh, will be available as linked to open data. And we finally validated um, all the data from the uh, Wordsworth Trust yesterday as well. So it was two collections we uh, helped make uh, open only yesterday, which was a very good day. Um, so another big success story from the UK is the York Museums Trust, who released 60,000 images uh, openly uh, last year uh, under a CC by SA 4.0 license. 
and there have been huge benefits. Now, many people have not heard of William Etty. I hadn't heard of William Etty until the, uh, now, but this image here, which is his most well-known work, um, went from a 50-word um, uh, entry on Wikipedia to a 2,000-word entry on Wikipedia. Nothing to do with the author. They didn't write any of it. It was all written up by people. Um, this, they worked with their Wikimedia in residence to put uh, this article on the front page of the day their new galleries opened. 13,000 people read that article on the first day, which is several times more than the number of people who would go in through the doors of a, a relatively small regional museum, even one in a tourist city like York. So it's been absolutely fantastic for them. My favourite uh, example of them uh, releasing so much data openly and images openly was that some of it found its way into the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail published some articles based on... Uh, uh, some images they downloaded from the York Museums Trust. But the Daily Mail so couldn't cope with the idea of things being released openly that they made up their own copyright uh, slogan and put it on top of the uh, images, even though they were open images. They didn't need to have any copyright. But you can imagine, you know, in Brothermere House, like, oh, my God, it's open. We've got to, got to pretend it's still licensed. <laughs> so... Um, this is my smiley face for, uh, for the benefits of open data. Uh, I'm uh, grateful to the Open Knowledge Foundation who've articulated and identified the benefits of openly licensing digital content. So increased public awareness, increased discoverability of content, improved opportunities for audience participation, secondary improvements in quality of content, stimulating innovation and creativity, increased educational use, increased use for research and scholarship, and intercultural dialogue and understanding. So these are the sort of benefits of releasing uh, linked open data. And this is the sort of thing that we and RES are trying to um, build upon. Um, the project was set up as part of the vision for the wider digital public space. Now, with the departure of my boss, Tony Aggie, to uh, the New York Public Library, that, we're t hearing less about that now, but the, uh, the idea of the digital public space is still there, and effectively it's what we're building with RES, even if we have a slightly narrower focus. And here is a short film. And having watched that film about 
hundred times, I now begin to find that pun great very slightly at the end. So um, what um, Rez is trying to do is solve the problem illustrated here, which is my favourite uh, picture of the internet. It's the problem of open. Now, you, this is not an internet. The internet, you say this is a park. But what that is is a desire line uh, because some useless bureaucrat has uh, put the uh, style there and all the cyclists have come along and ridden around it. And I'm a cyclist and I know why they do that. Imagine that that style is um, some inadequate piece of licensing on a piece of content and the path is someone's desire to, uh, to get the content. Now, you just go around it. And so what Res is trying to do is make the licensing work so that actually the style becomes uh, usable. And the style is there to stop cyclists like me mowing down small children. Um, but it doesn't actually work. So actually, you know, licensing is designed to make you use content in the right way. If it doesn't actually work, then it's pointless. So that's what Res is trying to solve. It's also trying to solve this problem as well, which is when you're looking for a bit of content, you have to uh, dive down into one silo, come back out, go across, dive down into another silo, come back out. And although you know, our museums and galleries have some amazing stuff on them, if it's not sort of in the place where you want it, then it does become very, very hard to find. So Res is trying to solve that problem. And we end up with stuff like this. Uh, we have about 70 million um, digitised assets available to Res. We've got data from the uh, British Museum, the Open University, Europeana, the BBC, and I've given you most of the rest of the list already. We're talking to dozens of other institutions. Everyone who I've talked to has said they're very interested, though some people are, are facing all sorts of problems in actually doing it for the reasons I outlined earlier. But this, yeah, this is, this is on the origin of the species. It's you know, a fairly important book. And I had quite an interesting, uh, this is at the Wellcome Library, by the way, a long conversation with the Cambridge Digital Library. Went, oh, but we've got all the rest of Darwin stuff, and um, but they don't have it as linked to open data yet. So get it published in the right way, lads, and you're, you can make that uh, joke. So I thought I'd do a little bit of a quiz. Anybody have any idea who that is? No, not far off. Right sort of part of the world, but a bit nearer. Bang on, yes. None of, nobody in my team got that. So that's Vlad the Impaler, and that's uh, via the British Library. So what might this be? If, like me, you wanted to know uh, in recent years why we've all suddenly become so poor, uh, sort of uh, revitalizing your interest in economics, this is um, from the uh, Open University's excellent 60-second Adventures in Economics series of podcasts, which are available uh, via Res. And uh, this particularly arresting image, uh, which I took from the We uh, Welcome Trusts. Any idea might, what might be going on here? Uh, no, this is uh, from a book called Sex Efficiency for Women Through Exercise, and I'm going to move on without any further comments. Um, and this uh, is of personal interest because the, the man highlighted down here at the bottom, uh, Mr. Kutcherman, or Kutcherman, is actually my wife's grandfather. And um, uh, this is, uh, I found via Europeana on the British Library website, is a series of five very long interviews with a rather elderly aeronautic scientist talking about the state of the... Uh, um, British aeronautics industry immediately after World War II. I mean, absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, th and this is all the sorts of stuff which is sitting on our cultural and institutions websites, which is actually, you know, they're doing their best to make it findable, but it is because there's so much of it quite hard to find. So um, we do need some incredible, some input from the incredible creativity of people like you. I mean, where is the city mapper for culture? Because, you know, that could or would be amazing. Um, we need what we in the BBC call shiny things, which is the way of saying to bosses, look, here's something that you can do. We, we need lots and lots of shiny things. Um, so, because um, we are actively engaging in project developers, uh, product developers, but they are people who deliver into schools. And I knew I had this. This is what I was alluding to earlier. This is the sort of thing that's happening in Holland through the Rijksmuseum, because having opened that picture up, Someone has come along and made that rather amazing necklace, and it's now being sold in the Rijksmuseum shop. So that's how they're making their money. They're getting a cut of an actual thing being sold, uh, which I think is better than trying to desperately to make some money out of something digital, which, as we all know, doesn't really work very well. Um, so, in conclusion, I've got to the end, really, honestly. Um, we do need some strategic leadership. We need some technical leadership, especially on standards. There's a real need for economies of scale and shared resources. I wanted to see one you know, um, huge institution earlier in the year, and the, the uh, director there said, every time I go and see the minister, he tells me to go and do some things, and then he doesn't give me any money to go and do it. So there is a real sense of frustration uh, amongst the people in the cultural sector that they're being told to do lots of stuff, but don't have the resources 
uh, to do it. And they're all, again, they're all siloed in their little digital teams. And we need someone sitting around on top to give them leadership and, and to give them economies of scale. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the institutions I just uh, mentioned with the uh, um, all of... Um, uh, Charles Darwin's stuff, their linked open data project was six months behind because their one developer had left because he probably got his pay doubled going somewhere else. So these are the sorts of problems that are coming out every day when I talk to people in the cultural sector. And this is, I'm afraid, where you can help. So let's go back to those figures, uh, which I mentioned at the beginning, £5.4 billion. That's the value of the cultural sector uh, to the UK economy. And £26 billion, that's the uh, input from tourism. And that is the benefit of this sector to our uh, economy and how we can uh, improve that by uh, helping them with their open data. And that's it. Thank you all very much for listening. Oh. I've made a bit of a mess, sorry. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Richard. That's it's okay. always so entertaining and engaging listening to you talk about these things. Um, I had a question, actually, yeah. which is when you said that these certain institutions who may have 80 million artifacts for data mm. and they gave me 10. Yeah. What's their rationale for giving me 10? Is it to try the process? Is it to see what the benefit is to yeah. them? Yeah, they haven't quite got 80. I mean, that's the, what we have but in yeah, total. They've yeah, they've got a yeah. huge yeah. number. They, they've got, I'd say, probably 300,000 digitized assets and probably millions of uh, assets in their collection. And the, the in that particular instance, the um, um, issue there is they have through a previous project been able to openly license um, two or three and they think they might be able to push it to ten mm. and they want to use this as a test case uh, to be able to show to the wider people the, the, the pre-digital people who hold the power in their organization look this is what happens mm. you know you may still sell your 300 books a year uh, which is on people's coffee tables but actually there are all these other massively uh, wider benefits which we are currently not doing so it's uh, you know it's a standard internet um, uh, experience, which is uh, you know experiment and fall forwards fast. Yeah, yeah, mm. great. Okay, um, just a reminder: the questions are being recorded, um, so open up to the floor. Has anyone got any questions? I'll come around with this mic, and I will <laughs> attempt to use the mic successfully. That should be oh, Freya. There we go. Working. So I'm Lucy Knight from ODI Devon Node. <coughs> I asked, I was asked to come in and watch this lecture specifically by our local head of the library service okay. in Devon. Um, and so straight to the practical, if Devon Libraries or Devon Records Office or any of the small organisations in a small place like Devon have assets that they want to digitise uh, or are already digitised and they want to share them on your platform, how does that work? Okay, we have a, a developer section on our website which gives the overview. The, the 60 second uh, thing is we would need you to publish your collections data as linked open data, openly licensed, with a link to the URL of a machine readable license contained in the um, uh, data. The assets they refer to don't have to be openly licensed. The BBC's assets are not openly licensed. We, we can't, so it's not our job and it's not reasonable to tell people how to license their assets. So any li license on your assets is reasonable and uh, but you again has to be machine readable and there has to be a link to it we can provide some help but we are an extremely small team so um, you know I could happily point you to where all the documentation is if you're members of SILIP we work with um, uh, SILIP so they understand what what we're doing um, so um, yeah we, we would sort of give you some advice and, and help you get on with it Okay, brilliant, thank you. Hi, Pauline Roach from ODI Birmingham and various other open data initiatives. Um, I was just going to ask you about SILIP, actually, the Chartered Institute of Librarians and Information Professionals, for those who don't know what it is. Um, have you had any contact with the Library's Task Force in the course of the work that you're doing? Yeah, my colleague uh, Bill Thompson, who I mentioned earlier, who uh, is one of the people who initiated RES uh, before I joined, uh, he is on the BBC's representative on the Library's Task Force. Uh, so yes, I, I, that's all I know though, so I don't know what we're doing, but if you feedback through the library's task force uh, and look for the, the rec easily recognisable Bill Thompson, then he can fill you in on that. Okay, I've tweeted the link to the task force blog as well, which I think are excellent and for everybody to read. Thanks. Good, thank you. So just another request, Richard, can we yeah. get just your, can you put the pitch there back on? Yeah. It might have uh, gone away. 
What do you want? Can we have your conclusion slide? Yes. Okay. So everyone can digest right. it. Right. Um, any more questions? Oh, have you got, is the mic on? Perfect. Um, so, you want that slide? Can you multitask? Uh, no, I'm a man. Of course I can't multitask. <laughs> there we go. Hello. So, which representation or data set are you using for representing the uh, licensing in a machine-readable way? Sorry, say it again. Yeah. Which yeah. vocabulary or representation do you use for the machine-readable yeah. version of the licensing? Right. So we um, need a link to the, the URL of the license, and we support about 30 licenses. Uh, in terms of the vocabulary, um, that's not my area of expertise. And the, the basic architecture of the system is designed to accept any vocabulary, though obviously if standardized vocabularies are used, that makes it easier for the poor overworked server. But in terms of, I don't think there is a vocabulary for licensing. On our website, there is a list of 30 licenses which we accept for the data, all of which are various favors of open license, both from Creative Commons and from the Open Government license, and a couple of institutional licenses as well from large cultural institutions in, in the UK. Um, but if you go to the res.space website, there's more information about licensing there. With the... Um changes in li libraries going through to more trusts and funds have been sort of like palmed off by councils. Have you come across any greater reluctance from the sort of, especially the regional um, libraries and art galleries and museums, the fact that they, they then start thinking that they might be able to make money out of the postcards of the obscure painting that they've got? Um, no, I mean, I, I have to admit that my, I've just put our website up there because I realised I hadn't put that up there for, so um, I... To go back to your question, sir, um, I haven't been closely involved in libraries as yet. So oh, I, uh, well, I mean, I, th I think I, it's uh, what I said in the middle of my presentation. I think uh, when people are under pr under pressure, they do either try go radically open or to, or radically new, or try you know fall back on their existing um, products. I think people are doing both. It's such a big sector. I don't think it's reasonable to sort of categorise it. But I mean, everybody is trying to generate uh, greater commercial income. And I've had a couple of conversations with institutions where they've said, well, if we license our assets, it's got to be under a non-commercial license uh, because that will stop uh, you know, um, their licenses being exploited. I'm not sure that's actually the case. I think the experience of the Rijksmuseum shows that actually if you license things openly, and the, and the York Museum's Trust, if you license things openly, it does make um, uh, it easier to generate money in other ways. Um, however, this is a really difficult com um, uh, conversation and uh, problem for institutions to tackle and it's not necessarily my job to tell them what to do. So uh, I don't know whether that's a very good answer to your question, it's just a bit of a ramble, but yeah, I think it's the picture is mixed. There's a slight conflation of the data and the images you're talking about and you know, I think no, you could have lower resolution version of images available yeah openly, but that doesn't mean you're giving the high-resolution images that the licensing people are interested in. That's a very good question. I'm grateful to you for asking it because, yes, actually, you're right. I didn't really explain our approach to licensing of data versus assets very well in this presentation. I, in other presentations, I do, but it's a, it's a good point to call me out on. We require that the data must be openly licensed, but the assets aren't. Now, these things are all noughts and ones, effectively, so where do you draw the line? And that's actually for each institution to uh, work out for themselves. For instance, you know, one of the large internationally famous institutions I talked to said, look, there is a lot of value in our data because it's around, you know, it contains uh, enormously uh, scholarly um, work about it, uh, their asset. So, yeah, I said exactly that point to them. You, you could have, you know, various bits of your uh, data set licensed as 
uh, in different ways. So make the simple descriptive stuff. This is a painting. This is the name of the painting. It was painted by this artist. You could make that open, but the really scholarly work about the painting could be actually licensed in a different way, and then the painting itself licensed in a different way. And yeah, there are some people for whom the data is their asset. I talked to Kew Gardens last year, and they pointed out they don't actually have any objects. What they've got is vast amounts of data. Uh, and actually, again, it's about where the cutoff in a data set is between openly licensed and perhaps more restrictively licensed. But that's for each institution to work out because they know their stuff. But thank you. This is really interesting. Um, we're doing something similar in sport. I just wondered if um, if you had any other examples across other industries that you took um, inspiration from when you looked to do this work. I'm going to do a, a lot of reading into how you've done this here and be very interested uh, to, to, to draw the comparisons. But who else have you looked at for this? Um, the inspiration started before I joined the team, so uh, I wasn't part of the initial conversations about to set it up. But I think uh, there's been a lot of work, a lot of thinking gone around on around the whole of the digital public space for um, many years leading up to um, this sort of when this project started in 2012. So I don't know whether they did go away and look at other institutions, but they they, they uh, other other sectors. Uh, certainly, I've never heard sport mentioned before, and I'd be very keen to find out more about what you're doing in sport, because uh, it's a two-way street. I think we can both learn from one another. But the, the ideas come from, I think, a long-held desire um, by my former boss, Tony Aggie, now at the New York Public Library, Bill, my current colleague, and various others, to look at how we uh, enable um, our cultural institutions to... Um, to make full use of what they are. So it's, as far as I understand, it's been all around cultural institutions and not around other sectors. Um, you know, we look at the ODI and we look at the, the um, benefits that you know, TFL does with CityMapper, uh, and we look at what the work that's done in other sectors here. But um, I think it, the whole of the project, the thinking has mostly been on um, uh, around cultural institutions. But the uh, the Warwick Commission did a report on uh, the digital public space, which was published either last year or the year before. So yeah, I can see you making notes. So look up the uh, Warwick Commission uh, digital public space. And if not, then email me and I'll send you a link to it. We also have the city map slide in our presentation. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> it's probably because it's the best example, isn't it? Laura, let me down here. Hi, so I'm actually working for the government, so I'm interested to see whether after that white paper there's anything positive that came about in open data just because it was in the news or it was in the air. Is there anything that came out of it from your perspective that you think it helped that the open paper went out? Uh, not immediately, though. I mean, it was only three months ago, and I think you know, these, this sector does move quite slowly. So I think it stimulated some conversation. I think it's reminded the sector that this is something they need to do. The sector as a whole is, uh, from the conversations I've seen, delighted that the government has paid such close attention to it. I mean, it's a huge white paper, and, and actually digital is only really only on one page. So there's a lot of other things they need to... Um, uh, to take account of as well, but I, you know, certainly we, in my team, uh, will be wanting to try and stimulate some conversation about what we can feed back into that report, because mm -hmm. and I know there have been conversations with DCMS about a platform uh, for uh, the cultural sector. So um, I think it was a useful kick, and it's 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 upped the ante a bit, but nothing game changing so far as I understand yet. Okay, and I have a, a second bit to that question. Yeah. Um, I was one of those shadows that follows Ed Vasey on Twitter, so okay, I got me too, yeah. a first yeah. look at this paper quite yeah. early. And it amazed me that I got to, like, I don't know, page 20-something, and nowhere in there he had or someone had defined what they mean by culture and the different mediums or the different, mm. you know, culture is quite big. Yes. So in your area, the, the type of culture that you'd like to see open, which ones do you think are more appropriate for this, that can and should be seen at first? I mean, I mean I obviously the art yeah. and the books and the but anything else. I mean, it's it's an enormously big question. Um, I think what we're focusing on and um, in our project is actually the foundation technology, which is I publishing collections as linked open data. Um, 
There is fantastic work already being done around art with the Your Art Project, or uh, is it art, Your Art or Art UK, um, which the BBC was uh, um, involved in. It's now moved off our site. Um, I don't think there's an answer to that question. I think all of, I mean, the, the joy of the internet is, of course, that that um, the, the the curve which goes from up there and down along there, and uh, um, everybody has got an interest in something. And, and the point of this uh, of technology is that it can um, benefit niche collections as much as it can benefit world-leading collections. I mean, to go back to the question from Devon, uh, it's sort of like I went to see the National Army Museum last year, and they were delighted by this because they said this puts us on a, a par with the Imperial War Museum. When everybody thinks about um, looking for um, cultural stuff around uh, war and conflict, they immediately think of the... the uh, uh, Imperial War Museum, but the National Army Museum has got all the stuff about Gurkhas. So if you're interested in, in what the Gurkhas have done, don't go to the RWM because it hasn't got anything. It's all at the National Army Museum, and their point was this democratised it. So I think actually the answer to your question is no, let, I, I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about creating a technical uh, level playing field which sort of democratises the whole thing and allows as much makes it as easy to find niche stuff as it is to find, you know, something from the National Gallery or the British Museum um, or whatever. So, um, yeah. Thank you. Chap at the back. Yeah. Um, you said the report didn't game-change anything. Will this game-change the BBC? That is a very good question, and I am not. Uh, that's somewhere above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> several cases, but I do know the people who are making the decision. Uh, the Director General has talked about uh, the need for partnerships uh, uh, several times. The Director General has talked about the need for uh, open several times, and um, and there are active conversations going on about platform. So um, you talk about things like the Ideas Service, which the BBC has publicly talked about, the New Age of One that the BBC has talked about. These are open partnership um, plays by the BBC. Now, I will, uh, you know, the, there is a cliche in, in the BBC um, that partnership is something the BBC does to you rather than with you. And uh, there are some of us who are trying to change that. But we're um, a large organisation with our culture, and sometimes it's hard to steer that. So the short answer is, yes, I, I personally hope it will, but I'm not making all the decisions. Um, and the BBC is an organisation in, in a lot of change at the moment, and we haven't really known uh, how we were going to exist until last week. So uh, um, there's still an awful lot to play for. But, yeah, there are active conversations going on about this sort of thing being a, uh, the foundation for a partnership play by the BBC in which we treat cultural institutions uh, as our equals rather than trying to make them conform to our own guidelines. So the actual answer from you is probably maybe or I don't know? Uh, stronger than maybe. I hope so rather than I don't know. But I mean, I, you know, unless I were the Director General, I couldn't answer yes because uh, you know, I don't have the ability to say that. But I hope so is the short answer. Jeff over there had a... Thanks. Um, as a member of the general public, uh, no. is there a <laughs> plan to have a like Google version search engine interface to your index available? Uh, that's, I'm glad you asked that question because one of the things I didn't talk about is how we and the, the team are not building a user interface. We've built one user interface, and that's a, um, a web app uh, over the Shakespeare collection that we launched out of the BBC archive to coincide with the Shakespeare Festival. But in general, no, we are not building a user interface. Um, and that's for a whole bunch of reasons. But the main one is because we've built an open platform with an awful lot of potential uses, we don't want to stymie any developments by um, doing something which might be seen by the wide world as job done. So we are actively working uh, with product developers in the educational space um, and you know, I have a, an engagement program with people who build um, software platforms for schools like virtual learning environments and learning management systems. But you know, it's an open platform. The APIs are explicitly described. Anybody can come along and build anything they want to on top of it. So um, uh, we probably wouldn't go out of our way to help somebody building something cool on top of it, but neither can we or would we want to stop them. Um, and 
you mentioned Google, and we are fundamentally different from Google. That was sort of alluded to in the film. I mean, Google um, cares about the number of links to a page. And you know, that's the Bastille example. If you go and search for Bastille now, you will get 10 pages of links to the landfill indie band, and you'll get absolutely nothing at all about the French fort or the storming of the Bastille or whatever. Whereas with Res, you search for Bastille in the right context, and you will get stuff back uh, about the storming of the Bastille or the French fort, and nothing at all about the band, because we our search contextualizes. And Google also doesn't really care about licensing, and it doesn't really care about provenance, and it doesn't really care about permanence. Google only cares about the number of links, which is absolutely right for a consumer-facing search engine, but for something which is being used to, sh uh, to, to dive deep into archives is not as good. So we're doing a completely different job to Google. Yes, but as a as a somebody wanted to research a topic, I'd be fantastic to gain access to your index. Yes, um, and I'm afraid I can't help you, and neither am I ever going to be in a position to help you. You will need to find somebody who uh, can build a uh, web uh, an interface on top of it, and and it should be relatively straightforward. Uh, European, I mean, it, the bulk of the data in our collection is Europeana data. So, uh, but we're doing a slightly different job. Um, no, to for you, a public interface. For a public interface, Europe, yes. Uh, it, I mean, if you if it's cultural data you're looking for, then Europeana has 52 uh, million uh, objects findable via Europeana from all across Europe. Um, though, again, not uh, you know, th their coverage is patchy because people have to format their data in the right format for Europeana, and some institutions see that as an overhead. But nonetheless, they are absolutely the leading game in town. Time for one final question, if there are any more. One more down there. Um, I'm from Seoul. Hello. Um, to ask this question, yeah. finally. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, why is linked data not just open data? Uh, do you have any uh, specific reason or requirements internally? Yeah, we. Um, uh, this echoes a question I was asked in a call I had this morning. Um, the, the architecture of the project was designed to use open web standards, and linked open data was defined by Sir Tim Berners Lee, friend of the house, uh, in 2010, was it? Uh, and he came up with a five star approach. Uh, to data, and I can't remember all five stars, um, but linked open data is a data set that is linked and open. Uh, and, you know, obviously there's a lot more to it than that, but um, it is data that contains links to other data sets and data that is openly licensed. So you can have linked data, which is not openly licensed, and you can have open data, which is not linked. So we require um, data that... Um, is is both linked and open, and that's where I think the real value lies. Thank you. Great. Um, thank you, everyone, for your questions, and thank you again to Richard. Thanks for coming in. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.